right. So we are continuing in our ser- series on 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking here at chapter 12, verses 31 to chapter 14, verse 1. So let's read together. It says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is the word of God. Uh, you might notice, you might have noticed that I started, the bulk of this sermon today is on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but uh, it's bookended here by chapter 12, verse 31 in chapter 14, verse 1. And and there's a reason for this. There's a reason I I brought these two verses in. Well, first of all, chapter divisions, all that kind of stuff was added in later by people as they were making different translations of the Bible. If you look at the Greek, there are no chapter divisions. There are no verses. In fact, a lot of Greek manuscripts, there are no spaces between the words. It's like paper was very expensive. Papyri was very expensive. Calfskin was very expensive. They did not can't, can't save those spaces in between words. They, they filled out everything. So it was like one long continuous thing, and people had to decide where to break apart words in sentences. So um, there were none of these chapter things. So I, that's why I think it's important for us to realize here, uh, there's, a, there's a really important thing, a connection going on here. If you look at the end of verse 31 here, of chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then... If we skip over chapter 13 and we go to chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there's a repetition going on here in the last verse of chapter 12, the first verse of chapter 14, earnestly desire the higher gifts, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. There is this flow of thought that continues here. Now, Before I move on, you you may be wondering, well, why why is Paul talking about desiring these higher gifts and and whatnot? If God has, as we saw in chapter 12, distributed the gifts to people as he saw fit, well, I I think there's a hint there in chapter 12, verse 7, when Paul wrote, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there's a reason Paul says to desire the higher gifts, and it has to do with doing more good, as much good as possible to people, to your brothers and sisters around you. And we'll get back to that more in chapter 14 as we start going through 14 next week. But what I want to really point out here today is that this chapter 13 is, is squeezed right in between here. And I left out the second half of chapter 12, verse 31. Paul wrote, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way 
Then he goes into chapter 13, which is all about love. Chapter 14, verse 1 starts off again, pursue love, and then he goes back to this, this teaching about earnestly desiring spiritual gifts. So what Paul is doing here in chapter 13, being purposefully squeezed in between 12 and 14, is to talk about the ultimate way to use our spiritual gifts, that which must undergird everything we do, the most excellent way, and that is love. That is love. And, and I think Paul is, maybe he's saying this because he's saying, hey, you all have different spiritual gifts. Let's desire the higher gifts. But before you start running around, you Corinthians, and saying, I want the higher gifts. I'm going to have more power, more spiritual power and whatnot. It's almost like Paul is saying, no, 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 but hold on, hold on a second. Before we move on to chapter 14, verse 1, and earnestly desiring these spiritual gifts, I need you to know, I need you to know, so importantly, the foundation that must be under everything that we do as we use gifts, pursue gifts, and as we live life, it is that there must be love underneath all that we do. That's what chapter 13 is about. It's this huge pause where Paul is saying, love, that is foundational. That is a way of life that must characterize everything that we do. And that's what th chapter 13 talks about. Let me give you a little bit of a breakdown here of how we're going to go through chapter 13. We're going to break it down into these three sections. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to talk about the indispensability of love the indispensability of love. Verses four through seven, we're gonna talk about the character of love, what love is like, what love is not like. And then verses eight through 13, at the end of the chapter, we're gonna talk about the permanence of love, how love continues on. The indispensability of love, the character of love, and the permanence of love. It's all about love. Love, love, love is what Paul is talking about here. So let's, let's start looking at this first part, the indispensability here. Um, so Paul here, he starts off in verse one. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So first, Paul here is dealing with the primary problem that was happening in the Corinthian church. And that was them thinking that the gift of tongues was the most spiritual one, and there were people who were kind of showing off this gift and feeling super spiritual if they could speak in tongues and kind of um, viewing those without the gift of tongues as second-class citizens, and those without the gift of tongues were kind of like, hey, who do you think you are? Or some of them might have actually been buying it and thinking that, woe is me, I don't have the gift of tongues. So Paul is dealing with these people who are using this gift in that way in an unloving way, and he says, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, whether it's earthly languages or the spiritual language of the gift of tongues. But if you do it in a way where you do not exercise love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And you know, I think what he's saying is like, you're like a gong, you're like, bong, or you're like a cymbal, you crash. You're like, you make this loud noise. It looks very spiritual. It looks very fantastic, but then people afterwards go, well, what was that all about? What good did that do us? What benefit did that provide anybody? If you speak in tongues, you may think it's very spiritual. It may look spiritual, but if you don't do it in love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice, too, he doesn't say the tongues is like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, I am, me. It becomes worthless, meaningless, what I was doing. And not only does he restrict this to tongues, but he moves on to spiritual gifts in general here. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul's saying you can have the gift of prophecy, you can have such an incredible gift of prophecy, being able to speak forth what is on the heart of God, maybe even speaking forth about things that will come, whatever it might be, you can have this incredible gift of prophecy, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. You're nothing. Certainly, 
prophecy can be used in this way. How many, how many prophecies have there been by various people or groups about the end of the world coming and Jesus is returning on the year you know, 2000 or, or whatever it might be that haven't come to pass? And we look at that, we say, well, that's, that's not loving. That just put a lot of people into a panic. It didn't do anything helpful. And Jesus also said, we do not know when he will return. So if you are for sure that Jesus is going to return today, I could tell you one thing, he's definitely not going to return today because you just made it sure. Because <laughs> he says, nobody knows when he will return. I've seen prophecy used in a poor way. I've, I brought my youth group out once when I was a youth pastor many years ago, 20 years ago, out to uh, help and serve the people in a Native American reservation in New Mexico. And we were on this reservation in, in Navajo Nation. And we were there and we went to a local Navajo church. And we were just there spending time with the people. We were worshiping together on a Sunday service. And they invited in this guest speaker who was a quote unquote prophet. And I heard this guy say all sorts of ridiculous things at the end of the day in order to get money out of these people living on the reservation. He was not Native American, but I could just tell in everything that he was doing and the quote-unquote prophesying that he was doing over people to build them up was not from the Lord. In the end of the day, it was to take money from these people who were already suffering from being in a very poor economic situation on the reservation. I was so angry. I was so angry when I saw that. Prophecy can be used in a way that does not build up if it is even real prophecy. Faith as well can be abused too. Paul says, if you have faith that can move mountains, but you don't have love, that's nothing. We certainly see faith abused, perhaps in, the, in this kind of like, quote unquote, charismatic circle or spiritual gift circle, especially with the name it and claim it kind of theology that says, you know, God just wants you to live a life of perfect health and finances and relationships. And all you need to do is believe enough and have enough faith. And if you have enough faith, you can pray it and God will do it. What we call the name it, and claim it theology, which is not true. Sometimes these people even cast blame upon those people who didn't get healed from their sickness. And they say, it's because you did not have enough faith. Now, certainly we see instances in, in the gospels where Jesus heals people according to their faith, but it is definitely, it's beyond presumptuous to assume that every single time somebody who isn't healed, it's because of their lack of faith. We can see faith abused as well. And, you know, I think maybe there are some of us here in this room that when you think about spiritual gifts or the quote-unquote charismatic movement, which is a really loaded term, which is why we use continuationists, we believe the gifts continue into today and they're for now and for the church, that maybe you have certain reservations about spiritual gifts and you've seen it abused in different ways, just like I have. But, you know, Paul is also seeing this firsthand in the church of Corinth. That's what he's addressing. He's seeing the gift, the spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, also the gift of prophecy at times, being abused within this church. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't tell them to abandon the spiritual gifts. What he does do is he tells them to use them in the right way. He tells them to use them in love. He doesn't tell them to get rid of them. He tells them to correct the way that they're using them. Because the reality is, friends, every type of gift that God gives us can be misused or even abused. Isn't that true? I teach. I teach the Bible all the time. I can certainly teach the Bible wrong. I certainly have taught things that are wrong. Every preacher, every teacher, nobody has gotten their theology 100% right all of the time. But we don't say, well, therefore we should stop teaching because sometimes we get it wrong. No, we say we need to continue to learn and pray for insight and to be able to teach in a right way. Romans chapter 12 talks about the gift of leadership. Certainly we can lead incorrectly, can't we? How many times have people been gifted with leadership to lead the church, to lead the people of God, and have possibly led them the wrong way at times? As a, a spiritual leader, I've certainly done the same myself. But we don't say, therefore, we shouldn't have leadership. We should just have anarchy as the church, we say, no, let's work on our leadership. Let's grow in our leadership. For that fact, the, the gift of helps. You can want to help, but, but maybe you help and you're like, oh my gosh, I wanted to help, but I made things worse. 
Has that ever happened to you? Sure, it's happened to you, even if you have the gift of helps. But we don't say, well, little Timmy, no more helping for you. You sit in the corner. You had your chance. Say, no, no, keep helping. And let's grow in learning how to help or administration. You may have the gift of administration, but haven't you made a mistake before in, in planning or, man, I could have planned that event way better than I did? We don't say stop administrating. We say let's grow in the gifts that God has given us. If never making a mistake was the standard, then we wouldn't be able to do anything at all for the Lord. But let me not just stop there with spiritual gifts. Paul goes beyond that in this next verse here. In verse 3, he says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's not talking about the quote-unquote spiritual gifts here at this moment. He's talking about philanthropy. He's saying if you take your physical resources and you sell everything that you have and you give it all away to help people in need, your brothers and sisters, the work of God, the poor, you give all of that away. Or if you are literally willing to become a martyr for Jesus, to deliver your body up to be burned, you're willing for the name of Jesus to give and surrender your very life for the gospel. You're willing to do that. But Paul says, if you don't have love, you've gained nothing. Now, I had to, I had to stop and really think about that for a moment because that's really crazy. That's really crazy, isn't it? If we saw somebody in our church who, who literally every paycheck that they got, they, they used that and they gave it away to other people. And, and, and this person was willing to even lay his or her life down for the name of Jesus. We'd be like, that's, that's, that's the ultimate Christian right there. That's the poster child for renewal. That's what we want everybody to be. But Paul says you can do all of that, but if you have not love you are nothing. You gain nothing. Now, that can be kind of daunting, right? It's like, wow, Paul, does that, that mean if, 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 I, if there's any, I, I have to do everything in love or else I, I shouldn't do anything at all? I, no, I, I think there's a bit of hyperbole here in, in the message that Paul's trying to get across here, but the message is true that he's trying to say here. He's saying you cannot do Christian life without love. You can't. You got to have it for everything that you do. It is the foundation that you build the house of your life and our church upon. It is the foundation of love. And if you do it without love, it's, it's not going to work. Whether it's tongues, prophecy, and, and, and faith, or if it's giving away everything that you have and even laying your body down for Jesus if there's no love there, you gain nothing. And I think the challenge, the challenge for us this morning as we hear this is to, is to really ask ourselves, what is my Christian life based on? What is the church really about? Is, is love, do I see love as the ultimate thing that we cannot go without, that it is truly indispensable to me? Do you feel that urgency, that burden in your heart that love characterizes us more and more and more. Because we can look at church, we can look at Christian life in so many different ways without love, can't we? Maybe you look at church as primarily a social club. A place I come, look for some friends, try to find some people with similar interests, similar background as me, so I can have some stuff to do on the weekends and hang out. We could look at church simply like a social club. We could look at it as a place of just religious obligation and duty, Something I got to check off, like, oh, worked out today, let me check that off. Ate my Wheaties today, check that off. Went to church and did my thing for God so he won't strike me with a lightning bolt, check that off. We could do that. We could view church in that way, some type of religious obligation that has no love behind it. Or we can come to church and we can serve a ton. You could be so busy with church, doing so many things and, and being a leader and but we could also do that out of a performance orientation for God, before God, can't we? Kind of like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. 
We can slave away for God because in some way we think we're earning our place before God. We're trying to be accepted by God and there's no love behind what we're doing. I, I wonder how much of what we, what we call burnout, that experience of, man, I just feel so tired. I just feel so burnt out from serving the Lord, from serving the church. I wonder how much of that can, can be possibly tied to doing all of these things without love as the foundational reason behind what we're doing. But Paul says the church, the people of God, is to be a place of love. Indispensable. Don Carson, one of my favorite theologians, he put it this way when he talked about these five things, tongues, faith, prophecy, giving all you have, your body being burned, but if you lack love. He said this, in this divine mathematics, five minus one equals zero. Five minus one equals zero. We can have incredible spiritual gifts, power of God. It seems like, oh my gosh, we're in his presence every Sunday. Martyrs, people giving away everything they have. But if there's no love as our motivating factor, our motivating desire, Paul says this is nothing. We gain nothing. We are nothing without love. And man, brothers and sisters, when I was reading this and I was preparing this, I, it was like a gut check. It's a gut check. Because we can just do so much church and relationships and stuff on autopilot in a way, right? Without love behind it. Is love there? So Paul, after talking about how indispensable love is, he goes on and he describes love in verses 4 through 7. Now, this is the famous wedding passage that so many people want this passage for their wedding sermon. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. This, that. You can apply this love to marriage. But this is primarily about, first, in between chapter 12 and 14, about how we are to use our spiritual gifts in the community of God, but also as well applied to all of Christian life, how we are to treat each other, how we are to do church. And Paul lists so many things in one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture here, and I, I cannot but do a cursory glance, cursory um, explanation of some of these things, but uh, let's just go through them, and maybe it'll give us a taste of what love is or is not. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Now, when he says love is patient here, it doesn't just mean waiting. Patient as in like, you know, yeah, the next iPhone's coming out in half a year or something, I'll just wait. I'm patient. Whatever it is that you're waiting for, the next season of your show, I can wait. Till my kids grow up and go to school, I can wait, right? I can make it until then. That's not what this love is. This love here, it's not just about patiently waiting, but it is about enduring difficulty or insult or, or, or um, injury from other people, being hurt or offended by others, but not retaliating. That's what this kind of patience is. Not just sitting there and waiting, but when you've been injured, when you've been hurt, when you've been offended, when you've gone through difficult relationships, it's a patience that endures that, but without retaliating, without revenge. And we can retaliate in the church, can't we? We can do that. We can be passive aggressive, pretend everything's okay, but everything's not. And it comes out in the way that you treat another person. We can retaliate by, by gossiping about a person who hurt you talking to other people, trying to get them on your side, maybe doing it in a very socially acceptable way. Oh, hey, guys, um, I want you to know, D Dave, Dave really insulted me the other day. It was terrible what he did. But, I, but you know, guys, we need to pray for Dave. I'm just telling you because I want to, we need to pray. We need to pray for him. You know, I'm just, that's why I'm telling you, let's pray together for this jerk. You know, just kidding. I love, I love Dave. Dave's sharing the same thing about me, maybe. Right, we could, we could, we could do that. We could gossip, talk about people. Or we can retaliate by 
refusing to forgive as Jesus called us to and just cutting that relationship off. I I mean, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, if there's a relationship where there's constant abuse that we don't draw boundaries or, or things like that sometimes. But perhaps are we too quick, too quick to cut off relationships to perhaps not exercise the patience that the Bible is talking about here? As Peter said, should I, Jesus, forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus is seven times. Try 70 times seven times. Because if we've been forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, how can we not forgive our brother or our sister as well? And, and kindness here, patience paired with kindness, what, what this means is that not only because of the patience do you suffer wrong at times and not retaliate, but kindness means that you actually pay back that injury with kindness. You love in return. That, 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 that when somebody um, injures you or offends you, you instead, as Jesus says, you give them a glass of cold water. You love them in return. You love even your enemies. It means intentionally moving towards those who may have hurt you or wronged you. Paul says that's what love is like. It is patient and it is kind. He says love does not envy or boast. And let me add arrogant together in there with boasting. It's not envious, and it is not boastful and arrogant. And this is what was happening in the Corinthian church, right? With tongues. There were some who were boasting and arrogant. I'm the bee's knees, which you don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't either. But we say it. It means they thought they were the best. They thought that they were the best because I speak in the gift of tongues. They were boasting. They were arrogant about this. And there are some other Corinthians that might have been envious of them, saying, oh, I wish I was like that. Or man, you know, where are my gifts? How come I'm not like this person? Church is a place, too, where we can be envious or boastful and arrogant. We can size each other up, can't we? When we come into church, when we relate with each other, we can size each other up. We can sometimes just do that so subconsciously by worldly standards. We size each other up. Oh, where do you work? What school did you go to? What kind of vacations are you able to afford? What kind of degrees do you have? We can size each other up and compare each other in that way. We can do this spiritually as well. In church, church can become about titles, position, power. How many churches have split apart, been devastated because of this envy and this pride and boastfulness within the church? We can do that as well. Paul says love doesn't size each other up. Love comes into this room. Love knows that every one of us, we're sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone through faith. And there's nothing better about me than you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul says that love is not rude and it doesn't insist on its own way. In other words, it's not selfish. Love is not rude and selfish. We see later on in chapter 14, it seems like that there was this rudeness and this kind of selfishness going on where where Paul actually had to tell the people, hey, when you prophesy, take turns. Take turns. It seemed like there were people who were there prophesying, this is what I think God is saying. And before this person finishes, a guy gets up and kind of nudges him out of the way. But let me tell you what God is saying. And then another person comes up and says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what God is saying. There's this rudeness this selfishness, trying to place themselves in front of other people. That was happening within the church. Paul says, love is not rude and it is not selfish. Brothers and sisters, do we come to church primarily thinking, what can I get out of this place? Does this church meet my needs? And we can bounce around from church to church to church looking for one that checks off all the boxes and 
Don't get me wrong, you, 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 you know, there's some of that's good. You want to be in the right church, the lines in all these different ways. But, but, can we ask the flip side question as well? How much do we come into this place and ask, Lord, how can I serve the people here? How can I love? When you walked in this Sunday morning, was there a thought in your mind, Lord, I hope that I can love people today. Lord, I hope that there's somebody that I can serve, I can encourage, I can build up, that I can show love to. Is there somebody here in a room with this many people? There are some people who are in need, who are hurting, maybe feeling lonely, maybe going through something difficult. God, would you, would you help connect me? Would you give me a connection so that I can love and I can serve and I can lift somebody up today? Is that our attitude when we come in? Or do we come in saying, how was the music today? How was that message? Ah, oh, Ulysses was kind of off. Or, oh, my goodness. You know, what did they serve for lunch? Ah, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What is our attitude when we come in? Paul says, love is not rude or selfish, but love focuses on the other, on other people, and loving them and caring for them. Paul says here, love is not irritable or resentful. Man, Lord, forgive me. I get irritated by people. I get irritated by some of you guys. Some of you guys get irritated by me. Some of you guys are irritated by each other. We irritate each other, right? We, we do that. Paul says love is not irritable. Sometimes, and come on, let's have confession time. You look at somebody, you go, oh gosh, Lord, just take this person out of my life. Please, could you just tell them to stop talking that way, acting that way? being that way. And your, your whole goal when it comes to this person is just pain management. Just, just take this person out of my life or get them to stop doing that because it's so irritating. And the people that just make you go, oh gosh, like that. And yeah, I mean, that happens. But you know, when, when, when I feel that way, oftentimes I'm rebuked. I'm corrected in my heart. When that thought comes in my mind, Ulysses, but as much as this person irritates you, do you love this person? Do you love this person? Do you want to see him change, become more like Christ? Do you want to see whatever is causing him to be this way, whatever uh, brokenness or wound or pain or difficulty, whatever that is, to be addressed and to be healed by the love of God? Is that what you desire to see when you see him? Or do you just want to get rid of him? <laughs> do you just wish he would stop bothering you? Lord, forgive me. I can be easily irritated at times, but love is not irritable. Love is concerned with the person, wanting the person to change deep down inside and not just to take away my headache or what bothers me. Paul says that love is not resentful. Some other translations translate this, love does not keep records. It does not keep a record of wrongs, which is there in the Greek. It doesn't tally. It doesn't keep track. I think that's so good because maybe some of us, when people hurt you or wrong you, you keep track, right? You have this mental list of the things that he or she said, the ways that they got under your skin, and you remember some of you, you may have a diary or something that you write. You better keep that thing secret. You better hide that, lock that up. You're keeping a record of it. Or maybe you say, no, no, I don't, I don't keep a record. I don't count 15 times, 20 times. But maybe you hold a grudge. You have a grudge in your heart against somebody and you haven't let it go. You haven't forgiven that person. You're still keeping a record of wrongs. But Paul says, that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love is like the love of Hebrews, the love of God, which says that all our sins have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. God does not remember our sins because Christ has covered them. That's love. Brothers and sisters, are you keeping track this morning or is there a grudge? Do you have a grudge in your heart against somebody? Is there somebody that you no longer give the benefit of the doubt or, or whatnot. I want to challenge you. I want to exhort you, encourage you to forgive, 
to forgive because love doesn't keep a record. If you've written this down somewhere, go burn that thing safely. Go burn that thing. Bring it before the Lord this morning. Say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. As you've forgiven me of all my sins because of the love of Christ, I am going to forgive as well. I'm going to clear this person's record in my book. Paul here in verse 6, he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Perhaps kind of a a summarizing in a way of the things that he's described in verses 4 or verses verses 5. Love doesn't do wrong. Love rejoices with the truth. And then in verse 7, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And man, that is so beautiful. And, and, you know, just a few ways that I think that this applies to the church today. Do we believe all things? Love believes all things. That doesn't mean that to be a Christian and to be loving means you're gullible. You believe anything anybody says. But I think what it means when it says believes all things is that you do give people the benefit of the doubt. That you don't treat people with cynicism, doubting, or suspicion, questioning all of their motives, maybe because of the past or maybe because of your past. No, you believe in people. You give them the benefit of the doubt and you believe that they love God if they're a Christian, that they want to grow as well. Do we believe in people, believe in the best in people because the Holy Spirit is working in them? It says love hopes all things. Do we have this love that looks at people and says, you know, even though this person has hurt me or disappointed me, I still believe that this person can change. I have hope that God is working in my brother and he's not done yet. And I am going to be hoping for that as well. I will not give up hope in that as well. Do you have hope for the church that no matter how much brokenness in the church and we see so much brokenness in the news and maybe you've experienced brokenness yourself like I have in the church in the past, but we still believe that the church is the hope of the world because Jesus is building his church. He's the head of the church. He's building the church. And because of that, we have hope that this is the family of God. And because of that, I will not give up on the church. And I think that's also when Paul says it, we in, love endures all things, it bears all things. Even at times when our hope gets broken or shattered, we will never give up on the church. We will continue to love because we believe that God does not give up on the church. Brothers and sisters, um, hey, feel free to use this for your wedding. It's all good. It's totally legit to use this passage for your wedding. But Notice here, I think it's important for us to notice, there's nothing romantic in these verses. There's nothing sentimental, so to speak, in these verses. These verses are about how we treat each other in the family of God. It's about, this is what love looks like. We We can do programs, we can have great music, we can have great tech, we can have a nice facility, we can have a great website. We could do all sorts of things. We could look very polished. But brothers and sisters, if we don't have love behind what we're doing, there's no point. There really isn't. There's no point. We need to examine our hearts this morning. I need to examine my heart. Is love behind how I view my brothers and sisters, behind my relationships with them, behind how I treat them, what I hope for them, Is it behind how I view the church and what I want to see this place being? Lord, let that be what our church is about. It's easy to miss that, right? I grew up, um, I became a Christian when I was about 14, around a sophomore in high school, right in the heyday of like megachurch movement in America, you know, where the big, you know, the big churches are like Willow Creek, Saddleback, little big name churches, huge, huge. Everything was about bigger. And don't get me wrong, a lot of wonderful people in those churches but there's a sense of like, bigger is better, build it bigger, build it better. And there's kind of this Americanism in it, right? Bigger is better, bigger is better, programmed, like corporate America getting into the church and well-programmed and polished and all of those things. But brothers and sisters, it, it, 
church, it's not an organization to build so much as it is a family to love. That's what this place is. And as much as we want to do things excellently and well, we don't want to be sloppy. But more than that, we want to be a place that loves well, that loves each other well. Paul took a whole chapter (laughs) to stop and say, this is what we need to be doing. Here in verses 8 to 13, lastly, we talked about the indispensability of love, the character of love, what it looks like. And then lastly here, the permanence of love. Love never ends. Now, before, I want to address here for a moment the whole cessationist continuationist argument here. I have to because this is one of the passages that is, is used or has been used in the past. I, I think it's been largely debunked, but was one of the big arguments from the cessationist camp um, that, that says, you know, prophecy, tongues, those gifts, they no longer exist. Cessationist, meaning they believe gifts have ceased. As I said, not sensationalists. Cessationist, gifts have ceased. Why do they say that? Our brothers and sisters who love the Lord, but believe the spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, and Knowledge here, meaning word of knowledge, right? God revealing something in a revelatory way. Why do they think that that ceased from this passage? Well, they say, well, look here. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge, word of knowledge, it will pass away. It's going to stop, okay? For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, okay? Now, the question is, when is it going to stop? When are these spiritual gifts going to stop? Tongues, prophecy, whatever else, all the gifts. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So these gifts will be no more when the perfect comes. Okay. So the question is, what is the perfect? What is the perfect? The cessationist brothers and sisters of ours have argued that the perfect is the Bible. That because back in these days, the Bible was not yet completed, the Old Testament was there, the New Testament was in the process of being written, it was not formally recognized by the church until later on, and so because we don't have the Bible, the revelation of God, we need things like God speaking to us through prophecies and you know, maybe visions and word of knowledge and things like that. But because now, in 2023... And for for a long time now, we have the Bible. We no longer need God to speak to us in these other ways, what they would call extra-biblical ways, through prophecy and tongues and whatnot. Now, that's the argument. The question is, does that hold water? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Why? Well, because what is the perfect? When we look here in verse 12, Paul continues to explain this. He said, for now, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. So we don't have perfect sight. But then, face to face. So the question is, this face to face is also describing the time of the perfect. Is face to face describing the Bible Now we see dimly, we don't see perfectly, we see only partially, but now that we have the Bible, we see face to face. Is that what this is describing? Or is this describing when Jesus returns? When Christ returns and we see him face to face. I certainly think that this makes more sense if this is talking about the language of theophany, the appearance of God, that one day when we see Jesus face to face at his second coming is when we will no longer need these spiritual gifts. But if that is the case, the spiritual gifts are for now until the return of Jesus, whenever that is, whether it's tomorrow or 10,000 years from now, whenever it is. Paul also, he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Is Paul here again talking about the Bible? Right now, in the year, whatever, 60, 50, 
uh, you know, whenever Paul is writing, right now we only know partially because we don't have the Bible yet. But once we have the Bible, we shall fully know. Is that even true? That when we have the Bible, we, we fully know? I think that can be argued to be no. There's still things we are not certain of. But then he says, even as I have been fully known. Is it that this Bible, when it's here, I'm going to know fully in the way that it fully knows me? Or is it talking about being fully known by God? That when Christ returns and all vestiges of sin are cleansed from this body and this soul, and I am made renewed, my sinful nature is destroyed, and the the effects of sin upon my mind and my knowledge and all of those things are gone, and then I am before the face of God, that at that time, I shall know in this full way, more like the way God knows me. Now, we will never know with omniscience like God knows us, but there is this knowledge that comes without sin. I think certainly this is what Paul is saying, and I think that most theologians would argue that now and have a difficult time arguing that Paul is talking about the book of the Bible. The gifts of God are for us now until we see God face to face, until that day when we know more fully. And and, and this is why Paul here says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, or the word can be remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, when we are face to face with God, we no longer need faith because faith will have become sight. We no longer need to to, to wonder, will, will God return? Is God who he says that he is? Because we will see him with our very eyes. Faith is no longer needed. Hope, we no longer need hope. Who hopes for what he has? We have the inheritance. We have the kingdom of God that we will be living in and walking in the new heavens and new earth. But love remains because love is more, love is a part of who we are. Because as the Bible says, God is love. And love is to characterize the people of God now. And love is something that we will always walk in in the future when we are with God. That's why Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you see, I don't want us to get lost here in the continuationist and the cessationist argument there. I give a point to team continuationist, but that's, I'm biased. I think that's what the Bible's saying. But not to get lost in that, Paul, what Paul is saying here is that, look, your spiritual gifts, even teaching, I'm not going to need to teach in heaven. You're all going to know everything you need to know. We're not going to evangelize in heaven. The time for evangelism is now. There are going to be none of these things in heaven, but love will remain because God is love and he made us to be like him. Love goes on into eternity, brothers and sisters. If it, so Paul is saying the church now, we need to be like heaven now. Jonathan Edwards 200 years ago, preached 15 sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to to understand what love is. And for him, his conclusion is that the church looks most like heaven when we walk in love. When we are filled with love here, we look most like heaven. We're doing what we will do for all eternity. We must love. This is why the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, love must be what undergirds all that we do. My prayer is that, you know, this, man, I, I, I just, um, I found this daunting, this chapter, Because how can I express something this important with these feeble lips and this this mind that is lacking in knowledge? How can I express this, what God is trying to say here? I, I, I tremble. I tremble at this. But my hope 
is that we would consider this deeply. That maybe next time you go into your community group meeting, you would look at it with new eyes. Man, I'm here to love these people. I want this to be like a family where we really get to know each other and we can carry each other's burdens and we can love each other. I hope we, we approach Sunday this worship with new eyes. I'm coming in here because I want to love God truly from my heart when I sing these songs. I want, I want opportunities to connect with brothers and sisters here to build them up and to love them and to encourage them. I want, I want everything that I'm doing. I want my serving, the ways that I serve the church, to be founded and rooted in love as the motivating factor. You know, when I, when I look at our church in the past six years or so of our young church's existence, I think we've most been the church. We've most been loving. We've most been the church in those moments when we walked alongside our brothers and sisters who were sick or who were hurting or who were going through tragedy and loss in their life. When we walked alongside them, that's when we were most the church. We're most the church when one of you grabbed somebody else and said, hey, let's have lunch or coffee, and you sat there and you listened to your brother or your sister pour out their heart about what they were going through, and you, you gave them a listening ear, you cared, you prayed for them, you really cared for them. That is when we were the church. We were the church when, when my mother passed away a few months ago, and, and so many of you came alongside me and Christine to care for us in different ways, verbal and, and unspoken. And at my mother's funeral in New York, when I was scared that nobody would show up because there was still COVID and it was short notice and my mother's friends were old and dispersed and some had passed away. But I saw love when so many Christians and AMI pastors drove down to New York from, from New Jersey, from Philadelphia, from Boston to be there to support me and, and Christine. That was love. When we love brothers and sisters, that is when we are most the church. I certainly don't love well. I'm a very um, type A, task-oriented person. But this is a challenge for me, this passage this morning. I, I want this to be what our church is about. And, and I know that many of you do as well. Can we, can this be, can this be our goal as a church? Amen.